Welcome to the Itchy Podcast. I'm David Calfee, the editor of Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology, a journal of the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America. It's August 2023, and this episode will be the last in our series of discussions with the authors of the 2022 updates of the Shea, IDSA, and APIC Compendium of Strategies to Prevent Healthcare-Associated Infections in Acute Care Hospitals. With me today are four of the authors of the Catheter-Associated Urinary Tract Infection, or CAUTI, Prevention Practice Recommendations that were published in this month's issue of ITCHI. Joining me are Dr. Sonali Advani, an assistant professor of medicine at Duke University School of Medicine and a physician investigator in the Duke Center for Antimicrobial Stewardship and Infection Prevention in Durham, North Carolina. Dr. Jennifer Meddings, an associate professor of medicine and pediatrics at the University of Michigan Medical School and a research scientist at the VA Ann Arbor Healthcare System, both in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Dr. Payal Patel, an associate professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Intermountain Healthcare, an adjunct associate professor at the University of Utah, and the system-wide medical director of antimicrobial stewardship at Intermountain Health, all in Salt Lake City, Utah. And finally, Anne-Marie Pettis, an infection preventionist at the University of Rochester Medicine in Rochester, New York, a consultant for infection prevention in ambulatory surgery centers, and past president of APIC. Thanks for talking with us today. Thanks for having us, David. We're so happy to be here with you. As we've done during our previous discussions of other compendium practice recommendations, I'd like to start the conversation by asking you, Pyle, to provide us with some background information about the epidemiology and burden of CAUTI in our hospitals to remind us why these updated recommendations are important and why we need to continue to focus on CAUTI prevention. Yeah, definitely. So, Pearl one, CAUTI is catheter-associated urinary tract infection for some of the potential house staff or other folks listening to the podcast. And, you know, it's definitely one of the most common healthcare-associated infections that we do see in the hospital. Urinary tract infections in general are a very common cause of infection and one of the most common causes that people get antibiotics in a hospital setting. And so together, those reasons are why we think it's really important to think about prevention of catheter-associated UTI. And as the hospital system has continued to use things like devices, central lines, catheters, urinary catheters are one of the things that are often associated with being in the hospital for a long time. And having a urinary catheter does increase your risk of having bacteria in your urine and potentially having an infection. So it's just really, you know, something that's pretty common that many of us see in the hospital. And, but many of us don't know what to do to try to prevent catheter-associated UTI. And so our hope with this document is really to get some brief and concise info out there to all parts of the healthcare team. So as we start to talk about the specific recommendations that are provided in the 2022 CAUTI update, I will remind everyone that the recommendations provided in all of the compendium documents classify prevention practices as either essential practices, which are those that should be adopted by all acute care hospitals, or additional approaches, uh, those that should be considered when the infection of interest, in this case CAUTI, is not controlled after implementation of the essential practices. And so the CAUTI prevention recommendations that were just published are an update to those that were published in 2014, so now more than eight years ago. As the other updated recommendations have come out, I've personally found it really interesting to read about and then to hear from the authors about the major changes that have been made in terms of recommendations for prevention. So what major changes will we find in the updated CAUTI prevention recommendations? Yeah, definitely, David. It has definitely been a while. And one of the things that we didn't predict as all of us were putting together this new round of the compendium was how much the pandemic would really bring out a focus on healthcare-associated infections and what happens to a healthcare system that is you know, really under stress. And we saw not just nationally, but internationally, a big rise in healthcare-associated infections. And so I think taking that piece of information as you digest any part of the compendium is really important. Specific to the CAUTI compendium, we have put in a focus on a couple of things. And one is not just talking about the infectious complications 
of cauti, but also just when you have a catheter in the non-infectious complications as well. And you'll hear a little bit about that from my co-authors, but that includes things like urethral trauma and falls. You know, if I'm involved, you know, I'm going to bring up stewardship. So we're definitely talking about urine culture stewardship in this and, and giving some really nice examples and references in the literature that are new since the previous compendium. And I think that's going to be helpful for people trying to come up with their own game plan for how to decrease potty in your hospital. And then another thing that I think is really nice, and, and Jen Muddings, my co-author here, really helped originate this, is this new figure, which is a life cycle of the urinary catheter. And I think that's really nice because it helps one think about what am I doing at my hospital to decrease potty? And where can I start? Like, do I have some interventions in trying to stop the catheter from being placed at all? Should I focus on the maintenance of the catheter or should I focus on getting that catheter out? And I think that can be a really helpful tool for thinking about this whole problem. Yeah, I, I agree. And in a previous podcast, I think it was September of 2022, we had a couple of different individuals talking about mental models and, and how as healthcare workers, the way we think about something really influences our behavior and our and our activities and our actions and, and may therefore influence the outcomes for the patient. And I think that visual framework or that conceptual model that you were just talking about is really a nice way to help us all think about and teach about CAUTI and its prevention. And so, Jennifer, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that and how we can use it in our efforts across the hospital. Sure. Uh, this is Jennifer. Happy to do that. The life cycle of the urinary catheter is a simple conceptual model. Uh, it'll, it's a picture uh, in the guideline that really tries to break down and organize all those types of interventions so you can figure out what types of interventions you have and they're targeting the highest risk. So when I talk about the life cycle, of the urinary catheter. I really think about it because those catheters, they are everywhere in the hospital. So you could say that they are endemic, like many of our microorganisms. They have a very predictable pattern of use. You know when they're gonna come and they will use and then they're removed. And so, and then they also, um, their life cycle can stop when they're removed. So the life cycle of the urinary catheter begins with um, step zero, which is really, do they even need to sort of turn that catheter alive by um, putting that catheter in? And this is really your appropriate in, appropriateness indications and in using your alternatives. Step one is what tools do you have to actually reduce cauti from insertion, such as aseptic technique? Uh, step two is uh, maintenance care. What do are you? What strategies are you using to reduce the risk of an infection during the maintenance phase? And then the third step is simply: Do you have tools to prompt removal of unnecessary urinary catheters? And really, when when we talk about you know a comprehensive county toolkit, you really should have tools in each of those sections so that you're impacting placement, you're impacting the safety of insertion, the catheter risk of maintenance care, and prompting to get it out. And really, if you find that there's a gap you don't have any removal prompting tools, that's an easy way for you to focus on which interventions you might need to add. This is a conceptual model that I have to say I originally developed to help organize these uh, interventions because there's so many to prevent counting, particularly because many of them don't have the highest level um, of evidence. But it, it is something that we've been pleased to see that particularly our nursing staff um, have really adopted these uh, models. We um, And sometimes they'll have posters to remind people that you are impacting each cycle, each step of that life cycle. And we hope it is a useful tool and to try to simplify all these interventions and figure out what's next for you. And I might just add to that if I could. In my experience as an infection preventionist, that visual model has really resonated not only with nurses, but with nursing assistants, all sorts of staff, transporters of patients, when we try to do our education, just having that mental model has been incredibly helpful and really has resonated well. Thanks, Anne-Marie. And so thanks for that overview of the major changes that we'll see in the updated recommendations. 
And of course, those are only a very small proportion of all of the recommendations provided. And there are actually quite a few essential practices. I think I counted about 30 uh, essential practices, and some of those have sub-recommendations there. And these are related topics ranging from assessment of catheter necessity before insertion and periodically thereafter, infrastructure and supplies, education and training, uh, techniques for catheter insertion and subsequent care and maintenance, as well as surveillance. And so while we probably aren't going to be able to talk about all of those today, um, maybe we can talk about some of those essential practices. And so which ones of those should we talk in more detail about today? Yeah, I think maybe talking about appropriateness criteria, and I'll hand it off to Jen to talk about that. So appropriateness criteria is a tool that begins with simply a list of what is appropriate reasons for using common types of catheters, such as indwelling catheters, intermittent straight catheters, and external catheters, but also importantly has a list of inappropriate indications as a quick reminder for some common reasons why they are used incorrectly. The CDC has published in its guidelines sets of appropriate guidelines, and there have been extensive work in recent years trying to flesh those out so that it really takes care of those complicated patients, the ones that the nurses have the most challenges taking care of. But one of the things we'd like to emphasize is uh, simply having a list of appropriateness criteria is certainly critical. And one of the common ways we implement that is actually within the ordering system of the hospitals. Uh, many hospitals have chosen to uh, require whoever is ordering the catheter to specify which of the approved indications they're using it for to increase awareness of what they should be using it for or not. But the other thing that's also really important is that when you have a list of appropriateness criteria and when you have tools that you are implementing, they are not the magic bullet. You actually have to go back and assess how well they're getting implemented. Are people understanding the criteria or are they simply picking the first indication on the list to get that reminder to go away? So um, when you think about appropriateness criteria, I want you to think about, do you have it? How are your clinicians being reminded of it? And how are you assessing that the appropriateness criteria are being applied correctly? One of the low-tech reasons, uh, ways to do this is actually what is known as catheter rounds. And these are spot checks um, where a few clinicians who are well-educated in catheter indications, and this is often nurses, who periodically go through the units um, and check the patients who have catheters, and they give direct feedback to those clinicians about if that indication that is listed in the chart um, is appropriate and how it aligns with that patient's clinical status. So these are key points to ensure you get the most bang for your buck for these criteria. I love that. And I think some of the same framework can be applied to urine culture stewardship. And I'll pass off to Sonali to talk about that. Well, thanks, Pyle. And, you know, one of the most important areas that we added in this compendium was a section on urine culture stewardship, which did not exist in the previous version. Our goal was really to adapt with the changing definitions of CAUDI over time and understanding from the data that's been published so far that a lot of our howdy rates that have gone up have been primarily due to inappropriate culturing, especially since the definition is driven by um, just presence of fever and a positive urine culture can give you a cowdy. So our goal was to focus this section on urine culture stewardship. And luckily for us, there is a mounting evidence of different urine culture stewardship strategies, starting from Mullen et al. that was published in Itchy several years ago, showing the effectiveness and safety of urine culture stewardship interventions when they have been implemented in a algorithmic fashion. So that's the area that we actually added a lot of new evidence. And I can pass it on to my other co-authors to see if there was anything else related to it that they would like to discuss. I think just one thing that I would mention is the, the compendium, it can be a, a tough read. I remember the first time that I read the 2014 compendium when I was an ID fellow, and I was just trying to understand like what a CLAB C was. But you know what, what I would say is like having that, having that experience and coming back to the compendium now, I think it's really important to look at appropriateness criteria, both for urine cultures as well as having a catheter. And that is, that's a simple takeaway. And you could do a lot with that. So if you don't have a checklist, if you don't have an EMR tool in your hospital, 
that is something that is based on literature now very much supported by all of the societies that you know really help us write the compendium and you can do a lot of good work with just understanding those simple criteria and this is Anne Maria I'll just sort of piggyback on too again from an implementation standpoint you know one of the best things I think we've had a sort of a breakthrough is the idea that you should not be getting urine cultures for things like cloudy or foul smelling urine. And it's like people know it, but when they actually see it in writing, it's very helpful to uh, sort of spread that, that practice to their colleagues. And another example would be not getting a urine culture on admission if a patient is catheterized just to avoid penalty. So I think some of those things that we've highlighted really can help in terms of urine culture stewardship. Maybe it's important to note that these urine culture stewardship interventions don't actually prevent those real infections that were happening, but rather they'll increase the specificity of our diagnostic testing. So we're not over-diagnosing things that aren't true infections, giving people antibiotics that they didn't need, and, and some of these other kind of secondary outcomes from falsely diagnosing somebody with a, a urinary tract infection. Absolutely. I think, um, David, you bring up a really good point. We also recognized this in the compendium and decided to highlight the different definitions of CAUDI. From what we've realized from our collective experiences is that when we talk to frontline staff about a surveillance or an NHSN CAUDI, we are falsely labeling some of these positive urine cultures in a patient with a catheter as a CAUDI. So we really wanted to highlight the nuances of what is a clinical infection, and we're not trying to avoid diagnosing those. So patients that have true clinical CAUDIs deserve to get urine cultures. We should diagnose them and treat them. The goal of our compendium was to highlight the nuances and the differences between the surveillance cowdies and the clinical cowdies so that you can target your your efforts of prevention and treatment towards the clinical cowdies. Another thing, just as a blanket that we've done for this compendium on that note is included a lot of tables. So if someone wanted to just get a quick overview of some of the important concepts and takeaways, we have tables and figures that we've collectively spent some time on for this compendium. And maybe at least one of the other key essential practices we should spend a little bit of time on because there's also more information in the current version than there had been in 2014 is the use of external catheters. Uh, I think there's definitely since 2014 there been a lot more use of external catheters for females. So maybe we can talk a little bit about that intervention. Yeah, I, I might sort of lead us off with that just because we had a lot of experience with it in my organization. And, you know, we were already doing most of the things that were in the 2014 compendium, but yet our counties were still not where we knew they should be and they could be. And um, so one of the things that we then did was implement external devices. And, you know, unfortunately, because we were doing so many other things, it's hard to definitely identify that as, oh, aha, there's what really made the difference. But I will say that it was incredibly well-received by both nursing families of patients that had would have had urinary catheters or had them, and then we switched them to a, an external device. And it, indeed, we did see reduction. Now, again, we were doing many other things. So it's it's hard to pinpoint and say that that was the magic sauce. But we had a lot of luck with our implementation with external devices, even though I know that there still isn't a lot of science necessarily to, to definitely support it. Hi, this is Jennifer. And I'd like to chime in on this topic a bit. A couple of important points, I think, for people to know about external catheters is sort of right before the pandemic, these became available to hospitals. And there were only a, a you know a few companies um, that did them. People were still learning how to use these devices, and there was no clear criteria for exactly when they were who would, these were most appropriate for, other than for the same criteria that have been published for male external catheters, which are for the most part um, quite applicable to female external catheters for um, indications. 
But I've seen there's some important common er errors that people make when they try to implement external catheters as a new device. A simple but critical point is it cannot be used to treat urinary retention. And this is the same for both men and women because it only collects spontaneously voided urine. Because one of the errors that we'll see in implementation is they will simply remove an indwelling catheter, use an external catheter, and then realize later when they get retention that it wasn't the appropriate indication. The other thing to know about is external catheters are really quite a new device. And the literature is just starting to get published on sort of measured, more rigorous evaluations of what really is the impact of these catheters on catheter-associated UTI um, rates in, in patients in that unit who still have indwellings? And most importantly, does it actually lead to a reduction of unnecessary indwelling urinary catheter use? When you first think about the device, uh, you might say, well, of course it will, because the patients who get the external catheters automatically cannot get an NHSN surveillance county by definition, because they do not have an indwelling catheter in. However, what we still need to figure out is, and there's really not much published on this at all, is how many women who have these external female catheters actually are getting non-catheter-associated urinary tract infections. Um, it is a device that is applied to the external genitalia. There can be some irritation, and so there are some concerns that that could increase um, the rate. And I am really anxious to see this literature published. The other things to think about this device and some of the early concerns about it were, well, it's a device that sort of applied, had, there is some pressure against the skin and there is um, suction with these devices. For our fragile patients, how many of them are going to get skin injuries, actually like a pressure injury from this type of device, a device-associated trauma? Fortunately, uh, many of the studies that have published haven't documented a lot of this, but there are some important caveats to know. And they are, there is no standard definition for collecting and reporting pressure injuries from external catheters, even how to collect that data or how you would attribute it to that device. There is no standard definition currently for when would you attribute a urinary tract infection to be device associated with an external catheter. And the other thing we find in the very early literature that has been published is sometimes even the definition of CAUI that's being applied is not a standard definition. And the last thing I'd like folks to think about for external catheters, and this is really also an important lesson in implementation, is many of the hospitals when they implemented this, and I've seen this on site visits, they really varied in who they chose to be eligible for this catheter. There were some hospitals that it simply became available for all patients in a similar to everybody who had access to incontinence garments or bedpans because it was simply seen as a nursing tool to manage incontinence and it doesn't require um, an order from a physician. In other hospitals, they restricted the use to only patients who otherwise had an indication for an indwelling catheter, but they did not have urinary retention. And so they used it as a substitute for that higher risk device of an indwelling catheter. And so you have to think in your hospital, is it being used to replace a high risk device with a low risk device? Or has this new device suddenly being used to patients who had little risk of urinary tract infection or trauma before, and they are actually at higher risk for this once it is applied. And so this, this data, it's very little when it's getting reported. It really needs to be evaluated um, systematically. And uh, then I think we'll know a lot more about this. So really great points and probably a lot of things that many of us hadn't given too much thought to. So thanks for going over that. And I will mention that there are a lot of other essential practices described, and I think everybody should go back and read all of those. But if we've done all of those essential practices and we are still having trouble with our CAUTIs, uh, you also provide some additional approaches that we should or can consider at that point. So what are some of these additional approaches that we should um, think about for CAUTI prevention? Yeah, I can I can at least start with thinking about like when do you even need to go to additional approaches? And you know, you're right, David, there's a lot of essential practices. So 
kudos to the hospital that goes through and finds that they're doing all of our essential practices already. There's a couple of tools that we have referenced within our compendium that I think can be really, really helpful to think about, you know, what are you already doing? And if those things are being done well and you still have a high CAUTI rate, what do I need to do next? And one of the tables and strategies that I think are really helpful is this idea of a tiered approach. And so in one of our figures, we have this figure that we used in a national study we did with CDC when Jen and I were at University of Michigan. And in the first year, we think about, again, this idea of essential practices. And then we look at the CDC PAP tool, which is a tool that the CDC had created to help hospitals think about CLABSI and CAUTI, and then going through that, seeing if you're, again, checking off those boxes, and then moving to the additional approaches. In, in general, those tend to be you know, potentially more labor-intensive, maybe more costly. So it can be really tough if you're a smaller hospital and struggling with multiple healthcare-associated infections at the same time to think about potentially a more costly or labor-intensive approach. I don't know if either of you want Sonali Anne-Marie, Jennifer, want to talk about any of the additional processes in, in depth? Definitely. And I can add to some of what Kyle said, especially when we start thinking of adding additional approaches. One of the things we discussed in both the tables and the text was using your measures. So your outcome measures, as well as your process measures to identify what are the barriers and facilitators. So what what is the problem that you're trying to solve? A lot of times we see hospitals that are having a problem with their counties just jump to an enhanced measure without completely investigating what is causing an increase in risk or jumping to something like reflex urine cultures without finding out what is the reason behind this increased risk. And so some strategies, which we will discuss further in our measures, is is assessing a combination of metrics, looking at your standardized infection ratio as well as your standardized utilization ratio. And in assessing a combination of metrics as well as process measures like inappropriate catheter use, urine culture utilization, you can get a better picture of what is causing the increase before you implement enhanced practices. This is Jennifer. Great points. I would like to highlight some tools and strategies that I commonly bring up when I'm on site visits um, to hospitals um, that are struggling. And we often will do these types of assessments even before we visit a hospital to try to um, help them improve their rates. Fortunately, there are several tools available online that are free to really help you assess how your toolkit has been built for prevention of county. My colleague, Dr. Saint at the University of Michigan in the Ann Arbor VA, his team, um, for which I've jo- I joined their team uh, later, introduced a tool called the County GPS, GPS standing for the Guide to Patient Safety, which you can simply find in PubMed. And it's a free online tool. And it'll ask you a series of questions ranging from resources to protocols, culture, and supplies. And then the answers will actually uh, give you guidance of what's highest priority and resources to help. The other thing to think about is one of the things that we find when we visit hospitals um, that are having an increase in their catheter-associated UTIs is they often can get very focused at looking at the numbers and just the numbers and then looking at their policies and seeing, well, we have all this in place. We're not sure what it, what's going on. And that the tool, I mean, the strategy that I mentioned a little bit earlier called catheter rounds, which simply means you've got some folks that are very educated on indications and catheter care. They do some spot checks of patients who have these catheters. And it's it really as a nice, easy way to quickly see, are you likely having problems with appropriateness, um, catheter insertions? We actually even recommend observing a couple of insertions, particularly for um, when nurses these days don't place as many. Um, and then maintenance care and what are the prompts for getting it removed? I want to go back for just a second to something that Pyle had mentioned. You referred to the CDC, the TAP report. And just in case people aren't familiar with that, talk about that for a second. I think it stands for Targeted Assessment for Prevention. Is that right? Yes, Um, that is right. And it's something that you can do in your NHSN app for your facility. And I think 
what it does is it helps you identify specific units within your hospital that are really contributing more caudies than expected. So perhaps you can really focus in on your prevention efforts and and use your resources where they're most needed. Uh, exactly. Are there, okay. Yeah, I yeah, David, I, and I think you know there's a lot of opportunity with with the tap tool. One one way that state health departments have really helped some smaller hospitals and critical access hospitals is getting with hospitals and going through the tap tool together with the state providing some resources or you know helping go through the tap tool to identify those units. I think that same strategy really applies to a lot of the measures that we talk about in our compendium as well. You know, you may have a cotty problem specifically in the surgical ICU, but, you know, not have that problem in the medical ward. And so I think this is a very good example of one size does not fit all and really trying to focus in and trying to understand where those catheters are being used, what kind of patients they're being used in, and you might be able to identify more of the problem using some of the some of those process measures that we talk about. Well, in addition to recommending things that we should be doing to prevent CAUTI, you also outlined several things that we should not routinely be doing to prevent CAUTI in our hospitals. And one of the approaches that you recommend against is routine changing of long-term catheters for the purpose of avoiding infection. And I think this is probably a topic that comes up in a lot of hospitals uh, when they're talking about CAUTI prevention. And it's probably at least based in part on some of the data that you describe in the compendium paper, where we uh, know that the risk of developing bacteriuria ranges from 3 to 7% per day during, the, during catheterization. So when we're having these conversations and people throw that statistic out at us, you know, how do we kind of talk them out of wanting to routinely replace these catheters? So what should we be thinking about when it comes to routine replacement? Hi, this is Sonali. I was going to chime in because I wanted to first clarify the point because it is it is um, widely misunderstood when we say replacement of urinary catheters. So there's two times where people consider replacement of urinary catheters. The one time is when a urine culture order is placed and this patient has a long-term indwelling catheter and we're trying to get a sample that is a little more representative of what's in the bladder. And here we're aware that the bladder can be colonized as well. That's one scenario. And then the second scenario is someone probably in long-term care or in the hospital that has a long-term catheter for more than 30 days, has no issues, no kinks. They, you know, urine is flowing. There's no obstructions. The catheter bag is appropriately placed. So that's a different scenario. And that's the scenario where we wanted to recommend that routine changes will not benefit, partly because we're not trying to treat bacteriuria. We believe that, you know, bacteriuria is something that, you you know, your bladder is no longer considered to be sterile. You have bacteria in your bladder, you have bacteria in your catheter. It's an issue when you get an infection. And as long as there's no obstructions, the bag is in the appropriate position, urine is flowing, technically, we should not have any issues with that catheter. I definitely want to look to my guru, Jen, and make sure that she agrees with this. But I think this was our thought, is differentiating those two instances. Certainly. So yes, those are very different reasons why you may be requested to replace a catheter. And I also um, wanted to bring up another point that uh, of clarification. And perhaps this is because I, I speak to, there's some weeks where I probably speak and work with urologists, given the work I do, but more than infectious disease doctors some weeks. And it's to note that there are some patients for which a routine catheter change is appropriate, but they're not doing it primarily to prevent infection. This is a subset of patients. These are often patients who have chronic indwelling urinary catheters for years. And because of their urine chemistries or the medications that they're on, their urine and uh, is it will commonly what we call cause a catheter incrustation. So it, it causes a mechanical block in the catheter. And of course, yes, if you have incrustations, you're at higher risk for infection. But the purpose of 
changing the catheters in those patients is to remove, replace the catheter before they get a blockage, because when they get a blockage, they can get, as of course, you know, pressure to their kidneys and infection. But this really, if they're saying they're changing it routinely, you should be asking why? Is it for a culture or a patient with a chronic catheter? Or is it because this patient actually is one of the subset of patients who will block catheters simply because of their uh, urine chemistry? And we, they're often called catheter blocking patients. And if so, usually the urologist has a specific guidance because they know how quickly they will encrust the catheter, like every three weeks or six weeks or things like that. But that's the rare patient. And it should be well documented in the chart so people understand that's why they're doing it. And this is really important because every time a catheter is changed, you are not simply reducing their risk of infection. That catheter change is traumatic to the urinary tract. When they deflate the balloon and remove it, the balloon never inflates perfectly. It might look like that to our eyes, but it there's like a ridging phenomenon on the catheter um, surface and can cause irritation on that urethra um, removal. And urethral irritation itself is a risk for a urinary tract infection. And then when they replace the next catheter with a, you know, with a new catheter, when they insert it, um, they're also at risk for causing trauma to these patients. Um, and particularly because so many of our patients are on anticoagulation, they may end up needing uh, to have a complication related to bleeding and their urinary catheter that can lead to a, a host of urinary complications, such as needing to have chronic flushing, longer days in the hospital, and a chronic catheter until your urine clears. So um, don't take that decision to replace it lightly. Have a very clear reason that meets these indications that Sonali and I have been discussing. Great. And maybe there's one other practice that you're recommending against being a routine part of cauti prevention that I'll ask you to at least briefly address. And that is the use of antimicrobial or antiseptic catheters. I think a lot of people are looking for the silver bullet to prevent cauties. And, you know, those sound like they really maybe that is the silver bullet, but apparently they're they're not uh, based on this recommendation. So maybe you could give us a little bit of the history behind that recommendation. Yeah, I, I can I can briefly speak to that. This is Pyle. You know, I think that there, you, you go through the CAUTI compendium and you look at the evidence and the average evidence is low, right? But this actually has a high rating. So it's something that we pretty, we, we feel the evidence is there pretty strongly. And, and like you said, David, catheters in general, both in central lines and urinary catheters, I think the idea is the same. But the two concepts are very different because like we've talked about today, bacteriuria is inevitable. Bacteriuria and death are inevitable, right? And so you're not never going to colonize, you know, like you're never going to get rid of all the bacteria around. And so it's just kind of a very different strategy that we are thinking about. And you'll see that kind of throughout what we're talking about, you know, talking about appropriate cultures. We're just, we're not trying to get rid of all the bacteria in that area. And it's as, I think it's as simple as that. And there's, you know, we have references if anyone wants to look into that, but we're just not there yet in terms of technology. I would also like to state when so Pyle was talking about level of evidence. So, and, and of course, I've been reviewing and uh, summarizing and performing meta-analyses on um, county prevention evidence for years. And unlike many of the much of the work involving, say, CLABSI, many of the studies for county prevention are simply more like pre-post um, studies, cohort-controlled studies, but there's not as many randomized controlled trials. And the antimicrobial catheters is another device that is similar to external catheters. When they came on the market, you would think, oh, like a great idea. How could it not work? And they were rapidly adopted because it was an easy fix. You didn't have to change behavior of the physician or the, of the, or the nurse or even the patient who's requesting a catheter that they do not need. You simply replaced the catheter in their hand and basically you tried to fix it with money. And we know that um, some hospitals, that was all they were able to do because of troubles with uh, staffing. And it's just so much uh, harder to change the behavior of clinicians. But eventually, the literature came out, and uh, the lead study 
was an, an RCT published in Lancet by Pickard, and it actually was a, um, a multi-center randomized uncontrolled trial. And um, this really, many hospitals and clinicians consider more of the nail in the coffin for most of these antimicrobial catheters. I can tell you that they are, they're still doing a lot of work on this. I review studies um, and grants, and there is still a ton of enthusiasm for finding that perfect antimicrobial catheter. And I do hope we find it, but we do not have it yet. Well, you've definitely provided us with a lot of great recommendations for practices in our facilities. And as somewhat, one of you pointed out earlier in our discussion, just putting something in your policy doesn't make it actually happen in practice. And so the whole implementation component of all of this is really important. And the Compendium's Implementation Strategies paper was also published in this month's issue of Itchy. So I encourage everyone to read that. But I'll ask you all today, if there are any specific implementation strategies uh, that you've found to be particularly helpful or important in CAUTI prevention work? So this is Anne-Marie. And um, yeah, I do think that, that the devil's in the details, if you will, because the tough part is implementation. It all sounds great until you actually try to get it to work at the bedside. And so there's a lot of barriers that that come up. And we were talking about tools before that show up in the compendium. And I think one of the best tools as far as implementation goes is Appendix 5, which is in our, our uh, revised compendium. And it's about a six, seven page document that really walks you through the different barriers that you're, you're probably sure to come up against several of them at any rate. And what it does then is it gives you some ideas of strategies that maybe will help you get over those or pass those barriers. And uh, one of the other things I, I really hope people will find helpful about this revised compendium is that not only do we address all, a lot of the technical issues, but the whole idea of the socio-adaptive realm when it comes to implementation, we've tried to put in some some um, some ways to approach that. And two of the ones that have been particularly helpful in my experience with implementation with county prevention uh, have been things like the four E's, which is a model where you engage first, then you educate, you execute, and lastly, you evaluate the different measures that you've put in place. So that's one approach. Another one is CUSP which most of us are familiar with, comprehensive unit-based safety programs. And, you know, sometimes that can be incredibly helpful in a very large facility because you certainly don't want to roll out implementation projects all at once. Sometimes you can really get a better bang for your buck if you do it more slowly, you know, do it unit by unit. And nothing is better than success to break down some of the acceptance barriers with your colleagues. So that's another good way to address it. And in the compendium, we talk about these different strategies that one can use. So some of the barriers that are outlined in the appendix, for instance, have to do with physicians perhaps not seeing the problem as a serious one as far as counties go. So then the idea is, well, then you need to do a really good job at presenting the data, not only the outcome data, but we talked about before the idea of really giving them also routine good data on your process measure compliance. And so I think there's a, there's a lot of things that are addressed in that appendix. So you know, for the sake of time, I guess I would just emphasize looking, taking a look at that. Sometimes people forget about the different things at the end of a document, uh, but I do think that's one, in, as far as implementation goes, will give you a lot of really good sound advice in terms of strategies to overcome uh, the different barriers. Thanks, Anne-Marie. And, and you talked about the importance of providing data back to the frontline providers on processes and outcome measures. And in the document, you do give some recommendations regarding these performance measures. So maybe I can ask Sonali to talk to us for a few minutes about what some of those recommended process and outcome measures are. Absolutely. I'll, I'll start by saying, so if you don't measure it, you won't improve it. 
But in our cases, if you measure it, you can game it. And so we were very aware of how sometimes the, the, the current metrics may be amenable to gaming as well as may not reflect how effective some quality improvement measures are because of the way the definitions are driven by urine culturing. And so our goal was to focus on just improving patient quality of care and patient safety. And so we took a more holistic view to measure development. And in addition to outcome measures that are traditionally reported by hospitals, like the standardized infection ratio, also known as SIR, and the standardized utilization ratio, SUR, we wanted hospitals to think about some of the internal reporting measures to be more process-oriented, like conducting random audits, like Jen mentioned earlier, in your units and calculate utilization ratios as well as appropriateness of catheter use, as well as monitoring urine culture utilization use. This is all shown in Table 3. Additionally, we have tried to help facilities think about how to combine different measures so for example, if you have a high SIR and a low SUR, that will represent a population with catheter use in high-risk patients, possibly could be inadequate patient, uh, inadequate catheter care or indiscriminate urine culture practices. So these facilities could benefit from catheter maintenance and culturing stewardship. And again, someone with a low SIR and a high SUR represents more low-risk catheter use where we would recommend focusing prevention efforts on decreasing utilization of catheters, and especially focusing on non-infectious harms in those populations. The last part of measure development, which we all worked on, was something for the future to focus on a new measure for the future. This measure will also be reflected in one of the upcoming compendiums on future metrics, which is the measure of urinary catheter harm. So I think one of the things that we all shared on this compendium was realizing that CAUDI is not the only harm that our patients face from urinary catheters. Um, there's several other harms, especially as Jen mentioned earlier, like urethral trauma, um, just antibiotic use for events that don't meet the CAUDI definition, immobility, restraint, increased length of stay, DVTs, falls. It's a one-point restraint. So we hope that in the future, we can all work together, or this is an area of need, that there will be a new measure that focuses on global harm from urinary catheters. Okay. Well, we end the podcast by asking each participant to give our listeners an action item that they can take away from their time with us today and put into practice in their own facility in the very near term, today, this week, in order to make their facility safer for patients. So with that in mind, what practical tip or piece of advice would you give to someone who is interested in improving their facility's CAUTI prevention efforts? Yeah, I, you know, I, I had a, a chance to look at all of the literature, just like co-authors, and understand the gaps. And one thing that I would ask for call to action is from our pediatric colleagues, whether you're a pediatric hospitalist a pediatric ID fellow. I think, you know, we really need to add to the literature. And you'll see that throughout the compendium that we have so much literature in adults about CAUTI, but we, we really still have a research gap in pediatric CAUTI. So I think that is something that would both at the same time help inform the literature and help us with the overall understanding of how this affects pediatric populations, but at the same time, very much actionable in you know, your children's hospital or your hospital. So that's one thing that I'll, I'll leave the readers with. This is Jennifer, and I've mentioned this a couple of times, but I think really one of the most valuable tools, which is low cost, is go and see what is happening uh, with your catheters. Do some observations. And this is often, um, you know, you could do have medical students help with this, um, as long, you know, giving them instructions of what you're looking for. Uh, nursing students, um, our clinical educators and physicians, and have some like do a, a few observations of um, urinary catheter placement, for example. My colleague, Dr. Melissa Minoilovich, who was a critical care nurse, did a great study where they actually observed sterile quote, a placement of indwelling urinary catheters um, in an emergency room, and they were already doing 
the buddy system with two people helping. They were using um, one of the kits with the best um, human factors to really try to promote people to do um, things correctly. And one of the shocking findings that they found, and this is published, is that in more of more than 50% of these routine placements, there was catheter contamination that was of, you know, seeing with the eyes, like not with, you know, the microscope, but actually saw that catheter that was sterile get contaminated before placement. So that's a lesson about insertion. About maintenance, one thing that I think is uh, kind of unique to Cowdy, a little bit different than uh, Clabsy, is that the urinary catheter, there's a couple of things is sometimes there's confusion about whose job is it to keep this catheter safe, particularly because urinary catheters are touched and acted upon not just by um, the nurses who place it, but primarily by the patients in the bed. Um, are they changing where it's placed? The transporters um, who are moving that patient um, with their catheter, hopefully not on an IV pole. Um, we don't recommend that, but we see it to radiology. Um, and then even um, the people who are emptying those catheters. And sometimes you'll be, if you haven't seen it, this is never going to be documented in your chart. You have to see it with your eyes and it could be a common source of contamination. The other thing to think about is really just look at a few cases. How do those catheters get removed? How does the decision get made to get removed? And that's because, and I've, I've done a lot of work regarding um, urinary catheter reminders and stop orders. Um, I'm all about trying to use a lot of different tools to get those catheters out. But keep in mind, you can have the most sophisticated computer order and list of appropriate indications that you've invested uh, so much um, time uh, in you know, implementing into your electronic uh, EMR and it will spit out results. And you can even have nurse-empowered removal protocols. Um, so you're like, of course, that's going to work. But um, we know that all of these um, tools, if they're not implemented correctly, they won't work. And those tools that seem so important, number one, the EMRs, some people will simply pick the first indication. And so there's getting past your reminders. And number two, it's, you know, really, if they're not uh, comfortable with that nurse empowered removal protocol, um, although they are technically empowered, the catheters in those units may still not be coming out if those nurses are afraid of um, getting negative feedback from the physicians if they order it. So um, go and see what's happening. And Marie. Yes. So, you know, the lesson I've learned really through my own experience, as well as uh, working on the compendium, is that county prevention is definitely a team sport, if you will. You, you can't you can't do it on your own, and uh, it's really important to embed yourself and your team with your nursing colleagues, quality department, the physicians. Everybody really has to get on board. And again, there's nothing easy about accomplishing that. So you might want to have some focus groups, informal focus groups early on, try to figure out who's for it, who's going to be the constipators, if you will, that are, are going to work against you. Uh, so you can figure that out, hopefully ahead of time. I learned involve the emergency department early on in the process, because they think they're helping everybody by placing a lot of catheters. And um, so they're they're trying to help. But anyways, you really want to involve them and involve the patient and their loved ones so that they understand uh, what it is that you're trying to achieve and why it's so important. And so, again, I, I think just to remember, you can't do it alone. It takes a lot of team effort. So Nolly. I feel like there's not much left for me. I think Jen covered identify the problem. Anne-Marie covered team sport. Pyle covered pediatrics. I was wondering what else I could add. And I think we'll just end with Pyle's note in normalizing bacteriuria. Like bacteriuria and death are inevitable. And I think normalizing the fact that you will have a positive urine culture if you check it would probably change our culture in some way because we so anchor to positive results rather than the patient. And um, that might be an area that we can work on in the future. Well, thank you all for those great suggestions and for joining me today. And thanks to you and your co-authors for developing this great resource. I also want to thank Lindsay McMurray, our producer and the managing editor of Itchy. And finally, I want to thank you, our listeners. I hope you'll join us again for the next episode of the Itchy Podcast.